In most foreign conflicts, including recent ones in Afghanistan and Iraq, the U.S. has kept its prisoners far away from ordinary citizens. But as we'll hear in the next hour, during World War II it was different. More than 400,000 Axis prisoners were shipped to the U.S. Some were Italian or Japanese, but the vast majority were German. And in small-town America, the enemies came face to face. Allison Jones brings us the story. The roundup of prisoners, dazed, shell-shocked Nazis, remnants of the once proud Africa Corps. In November of 1942, the British had already chased the Africa Corps from Egypt all across North Africa. Advancing past battered tanks where so-called Nazi supermen died in frenzied flight. Here, the Nazi goal of conquest is buried in the sands of Africa. My name is Arnold Kramer. I am a professor at Texas A&M University. At the end, the United States was waiting like a catcher's mitt and 330,000 Africa Corps people surrendered at the same time and uh, we had to decide what to do with them. What do you do with 330,000 prisoners? I am Erich Moretti and I had been captured by the British 8th Army in Tunisia on the border to Algeria. Large convoys are crossing the ocean with boatloads of war prisoners. More than a million well-trained enemy soldiers are taken off the battlefields, and thousands more continue to pour into internment camps every day as defeat slowly and surely closes in around their country. As far as you could see, there were more than 100 ships surrounded by warships from the United States and Great Britain and to protect against the submarines, the German submarines, all going to the United States. Werner Lubbock was captured in 1944 and sent to America by ship. On board, the prisoners were served a special meal. Lubbock kept a copy of the menu. See, these, uh, look, mixed pickles, soup, jujube. Fish munier, braised short ribs, and Delmonico potatoes were also on the menu, with ice cream and fresh fruit for dessert. We had every day fresh rolls, fresh baked rolls. It was so fantastic, we couldn't believe it. After a three-week voyage, the ships docked in Norfolk, or New York City. New York, the Statue of Liberty, the skyscrapers, I've never seen anything like this. And I mean, you have to consider my age. I was not even 19. Everything was adventure, exciting. And nobody was shooting at me again. <laughs> and she's the only one that'll sound that way On the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe First we put them up in a racetrack. Then we put them up in high school gyms, tent cities, any place that was enclosed, until we realized that many more are going to be here. So we better start building camps. And we built a camp outside of almost every small town that volunteered land. I'm Heino Eriksson. I was born in Kiel, Germany in 1924. Eriksson was captured in Tunisia while fighting for the 22nd Panzer Grenadier Division. He was shipped to New York. Prisoners were put on uh, Pullman trains, very nice trains on which black Americans were not allowed to ride. But German prisoners were. There were cities and fields and villages. From New York to Texas, you saw the whole countryside, cars driving, buildings lit up. 
my hometown was bombed from 39 on, and here there was peace, you know, people driving cars. I could see the difference. In other words, I began to wonder, that how could we ever figure we beat the U.S. in this war? The first camps sprang up in the south and southwest. We just had more land. We had more land and fewer war industries and more enterprising uh, local politicians who realized the benefits to their small town just coming out of the Depression years. You couldn't drive 50 miles, certainly in Texas, without bumping into a German prison camp. They were all over. Set in a flat river valley an hour and a half northeast of Austin, Camp Hearn was one of the nation's first and largest POW camps, housing 4,800 prisoners. Carl Katropia, a farmer, remembers how everybody turned out to see the German prisoners marched in from the railroad stop. They blocked the highway off and stopped all the traffic. We saw them coming down the highway, marching them, and they had the jeeps with the machine guns. And we all ran up to the corner of the property line and we could see them march right on in. Americans didn't yet know all the dark details of the Nazi reign in Europe. But newsreels, posters, and popular songs urged Americans to be on guard against the enemy. Shh, don't talk too much. Shh, don't know too much. Jack, don't be too hip, cause a slip of the lip might sink a ship. We were just amazed how many people were staring at us. I think we were the big sensation, the Huns or whatever. <laughs> At Camp Hearn, a little city sprang up almost overnight in the middle of the Texas prairie. Nazi prisoners of war at a camp in northern United States. War prisoners received the same rations as American soldiers. These Signal Corps pictures show a fully equipped recreation room provided for the captives, who even have their own band. America scrupulously observes the principles of humanity in her treatment of war prisoners. Archaeologist Mike Waters stands in a weedy field showing me what survives of Camp Hearn today. They created their own theater, complete with tiered seating in an orchestra pit. They put on very elaborate stage productions, complete costuming, complete props. They made the wigs, they painted the scenery, and the camp commander would come in with his wife. POWs at Hearn and other camps could take college-level courses and even earn degrees while in prison. There were correspondence courses from nearby universities. Accounting, English literature, English composition, handicraft programs, and religious programs. Uh, we uh, inundated them with these things, considering that if we want to eradicate Nazism, we have to replace it with something. And every now and again, when I'm overseas, I'll bump into somebody who will say, oh, you're from Texas A&M? You, you're a professor at Texas A&M? Yes. And he'll show me his Texas A&M ring and say, I'm a graduate of Texas A&M, 1944, from Camp Hearn or from Camp Mahia or from any of the camps that used to have correspondence courses. There was work, too, if the prisoners chose it, and they did at POW camps from Maine to California. Use of the men for timber work was recently authorized to offset the grave labor shortage. There is no boredom here. This is imprisonment in humane America. The key is reciprocity. We had 371,000 
Germans here. They had 90,000 Americans there. And we felt if we do well by them here, they will do well by our prisoners there. I'm J.D. Wardlow. I'll be 90 years old in January. J.D. Wardlow was a guard at Camp Hearn. We worked them on the farms. If they tried to run and make a break, we were supposed to holler at them, stop, halt, 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 three times. If they didn't halt, we were supposed to shoot them in the leg and not to kill them, just to knock them down where they couldn't run. There are several of them had a chance to walk away, get out of the camp some way without being noticed. And when they'd be missed, they'd drive down Hearn, just see them walking up and down the street like they owned the town, you know. The light punishments angered those who already thought the POWs had it too good. Good evening, Mr. Mr. North and South American. By short wave overseas, let's go to press. They were getting better food. They were getting, in some places, wine and beer with their evening meals. People in many small communities used to refer to the German prison camp as the Fritz Ritz. Many letters and telegrams sent by officers and enlisted personnel stationed at the Navy Air Base at Jacksonville, Florida, complained to me that while they sweltered all week in the heat, 200 electric fans were given to German prisoners of war. Every Sunday night, everybody listened to Walter Winchell, who made it all very urgent sounding and very exciting sounding. Uh, my name is Kurt Landsberger. I was born in 1920. Kurt Landsberger fled Vienna in 1938 to escape Nazi persecution of the Jews, eventually landing in New York City. He was drafted, and in May 1943, he was assigned to a POW camp in Colorado. There he found himself interpreting for German officers. When there were disturbances, I had to march in with the guards and translate for the officers so they could settle whatever caused the problem. I often wondered how the prisoners felt about me. I, who was a nothing in the eyes of the Nazi, now they had to come in to me with the slightest requests. Landsberger watched in frustration as his commanding officer gave German officers special privileges. He gave the Germans officers, horses, to go riding in the country. I'm not kidding. All they had to do is promise to come back. Among the prisoners were some talented musicians. Archaeologist Mike Waters says Camp Hearn in Texas had several bands and orchestras because members of an Africa Corps band had brought their instruments with them to the U.S. So they were always entertaining, you know, the American officers and any guests that they had, and including uh, Lyndon Johnson, who happened to be a representative then. In midsummer 1944, Camp Hearn officials asked a POW orchestra to play for a dance. The date was July 4th. And they got ready to have the, the dance to start, and German band would not play with the American flag up there. They wouldn't play till they lowered the flag. So to have a band, they had to lower the flag, and that made the news. <laughs> Orchestras, plays, classes, newspapers. Camp Hearn became a little Germany. And like Germany in the 1940s, the camp was also marked by violence and cruelty. The Nazi element took over in the camp and kind of acted as a shadow government. They were mean, and they were mean to the Germans, prisoners. Groups of hardened Nazis formed uh, what were called kangaroo courts. 
they would get together and they would judge whether one of their uh, prisoners in the camp was showing too much uh, interest in American things. They'd break in on them at night within the compound where the people on the tower couldn't see them. They'd cut holes in their fence and crawl through. And in early morning, it looked like a battlefield. Seeing all these uh, kangaroo courts going on in every camp, and they were in almost every camp, now how do you separate the anti-Nazis from the Nazis? Near the end of the war, the army decided to separate out the pro-Nazis from the anti-Nazis. The problem is that's way too late. At Camp Hearn, the ardent Nazi faction kept a close eye on one prisoner in particular. Hugo Krauss had grown up in the U.S. after immigrating to this country with his parents in the 1930s. He went to Germany to study and eventually joined the German army. He was captured in North Africa. So here you have this fellow who's an American citizen in the German army who's a prisoner at Camp Hearn. They used him as an interpreter at the hospital. And what Hugo would do, he'd get the dope on if the Nazis planned to break or something. He'd find out about it, and he'd notify our staff. Camp Hearn's dedicated Nazis decided to teach Krauss a lesson by delivering a severe beating known as a holy ghost. They came in and would start to stay in your bunk, and they had uh, masks and so on. They walked in there, walked right to the, the bunk, and they just started pummeling him with the lead pipe as well as the boards. To beat him with boards and nails, he was really badly hurt when they left. Krauss died six days after the attack. His murder went unsolved for two years until one man confessed and implicated the rest. The gang was sentenced to hard labor at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And about two years later, they're all returned to Germany and living as free individuals. At the time of the Krauss attack, Heino Erickson was living in the same barrack. The murder left him shaken. He asked for a transfer, and at his new camp, Fort Knox, he laid low. He worked in the camp kitchen alongside U.S. soldiers, singing along to your hit parade. Oh, give me land, lots of land, and the starry skies above. Don't fence me in. It was uh, our favorite song at the PW, Don't Fence Me In. Don't fence me in. At Fort Knox, Erickson had a lenient boss who sent him on errands around the massive base. Often, Erickson would slip off his jacket where the letters P and W were stenciled in white. Without the jacket, he could roam the fort and blend in with American soldiers. Within the vast compound, he felt almost free. As a prisoner of war, I had some freedom, probably more than I had in the German army. Yeah, because nobody told me what to believe in. I, I learned uh, as a POW what freedom means. The danger was not the U.S. The enemy was our protector, really. You're listening to Mine Enemy, the story of German POWs in America. I'm John Bewin. Behind the South Carolina farmhouse where Sybil Camlin grew up, six names were inscribed on the concrete steps. Over the last step coming into the back porch, the Germans, they wrote, May God bless this house in German. 
and then all six of them signed it, and it was always special. The names date from the latter days of World War II. Allison Jones brings us the story. Before May 1945, the war seemed distant to the Camlin children, the stuff of headlines and popular songs full of longing. I've counted every minute of each live long day Been so melancholy since he went away The children knew almost nothing about Germans, except that they were the enemy. That changed overnight. I am Cecil Camlin. I was born in Florence, South Carolina on January 10, 1934. What I remember about it is my dad saying one night, we're going to have Germans here tomorrow. Germany had just surrendered on May 8, 1945. The National Broadcasting Company delays the start of all its programs to bring you a special bulletin. It was announced in San Francisco half an hour ago by a high American official not identified as saying that Germany has surrendered unconditionally to the Allies, no strings attached. I'll repeat that. Within weeks of the surrender, some 400 German prisoners arrived at Florence Army Airfield. I'm Cecil Ward. I'm 83 years old, plus I guess I was about 15 when they started bringing the prisoners in. I had my ideas of Germans up until that time, and particularly German soldiers. The war had left locals shorthanded, and German soldiers were put to work on farms and in factories. Ward worked alongside POWs at a tobacco warehouse. I noticed this one big German soldier had a very large silver buckle, and even I knew what it meant. It said, God is with us. And I said, what does he mean, God is with us? I said, God's not with them, he's with us. You had a picture of the German soldier and how mean and cruel they were. I just thought they were all evil people, more like an animal. And I knew they were the enemy. And I thought they all should be shot. Other local families felt differently, though. I was always taught to like the Germans. I'm Linda Anderson Bruton, and I'm 72 years old. My mother's family, most of her family, were from Germany. A group of prisoners came to work on the Anderson farm and were soon sitting down to lunch each day with the family. I could not eat with them because my job was to watch for the guard. Now, why was that? My mother wasn't supposed to feed them. So I had to keep looking down the road to see (laughs) if he was coming. Most of the POWs worked in the fields, harvesting cotton and tobacco. But one prisoner, Hans Lydell, stayed in the house with Linda and her mother. I just remember them talking, and she and Hans would discuss books. And my mother was just totally fascinated with him. She had the first copy that she had got back in 1939 of Mein Kampf. She said it was real scary when she first read it. I can't answer why she got that book, but she read a lot. I think it was all intellectual stimulation. She was always searching, I mean, always searching for something a little deeper. And living out on a farm, you you were kind of isolated. Very isolated. The POW also took care of Bruton when her mother was busy. He became like a nanny for the little girl. We would talk out in the yard under the pecan trees. We had a lot of pecan trees. And 
We had an old piano that had been my grandmother's, and he was the first person to teach me how to play the piano and my numbers and basic adding and subtracting. I knew how to write my name. Anything I wanted to know, he taught me. A few miles away, six German POWs were also working at the Camlin farm, harvesting cotton and tobacco and repairing barns and fences. Cecil Camlin was about 10 years old at the time. It was as if they were company. I never remember feeling there being enemies. They would arrive in the morning, 6.30, they'd come in on the pickup truck, no matter what the weather was. They were eating breakfast as daybreak was coming, and the black people were beginning to show up for work. Two large sharecropper families, the Andersons and the Thomases, worked alongside the Germans. Altogether, about 50 sharecroppers lived and worked on the Camlin farm. My name was Mary Henry, and I grew up on the Camlin farm. We were sharecropping with him. Ever since I was about eight years old, we used to be in the field sitting out tobacco and um, pick cotton. Now we had to help pick cotton. And uh, we picked that by the pound. And at the end of the day, they, they would weigh up see how much cotton you picked that day. Mary Henry's father worked in the fields with the German prisoners. I heard my daddy talking about the prisoners, how good they was working, and it was good to work with and stuff like that. They got along good with them. He had no problem with them. The POWs worked all summer from daybreak till dusk. Then in August, long-awaited news finally arrived. 7 p.m. Eastern Wartime, Bob Trout reporting. The Japanese have accepted our terms fully. That's the word we've just received from the White House in Washington. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. The war had ended, but hundreds of thousands of war captives were still in U.S. hands, and Germany was in tatters. While the Allies debated what to do with the POWs, the prisoners kept working all across the country. At the Camlin farm, they planted a vineyard and built four new tobacco barns. The guys would go down into the woods and cut trees and with mules pull the logs up toward the big backyard and they would mill the wood right there to make the barns. When Christmas was coming, the Camlins asked for permission to keep the POWs into the evening for a party. What I remember is my mother going all out, planning not only a huge feast of all kinds of meats and vegetables, three or four kinds of cakes. My sister's about two years older, so she'd be about 14 and I was 10 or 12. You know, we were good dishwashers and potato peelers and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Julia Camlin Sellers, almost 80, next month. Somebody said there was a pianist among them and they were invited to go and sing Christmas carols. In our living room, we had a baby grand piano and the adults were sort of standing around and my dad was there beside my mother, and I just remember standing there, smaller than these bigger soldiers, and they started singing Stiggy Knot. 
and was um, the most moving, astounding feeling that they had. And you wished they could be with their families. You knew their families were feeling less than euphoric that day, mm -hmm. that season. It was a poignant time. We had to pause several times. They wanted to sing it, but they kept breaking down. It made the whole idea of war so, so absurd. And no, I never forgot it. But with time, the memory also began to trouble Cecil Camlin. Camlin had grown up to be a Methodist minister who preached from the pulpit against segregation. Years later, he remembered the childhood Christmas scene in a note to his siblings, including his sister, Sybil. It says, um, here, I remember the Christmas the prisoners shared with us. After my mother's delicious feast, we all went together to the living room. One of the prisoners... The letter concludes... My mother continually provided abundant food for the prisoners without sensitivity to their leadership's record of killing millions of human beings. However, she was so racially prejudiced that none of the blacks who for generations cooperated willingly for our family's betterment were allowed in her kitchen. It really saddened me as I matured that we couldn't open our table for our closest neighbor. It's difficult to comprehend what it was like to have this geographical barrier that race brought about. They had their living quarters, we had our living quarters. It was almost a separate country, our kitchen and their kitchen. Mary Henry, the sharecropper's daughter, has her own memories of growing up with the Camlin children. I never knew about what the dinner all them, them workers should have been invited to it. If they worked together, they should have celebrated together. That's what it should have been. Mm -hmm. But back long then, it was different. During that time, the workers had to go up to the house and get their orders to do what they had to do that day. And, and you didn't go no far in the steps. No far in the steps. You didn't go in that house. The only person used to go in the house is my Aunt Rosa when she go and do the cleaning and stuff. Yes, ma'am. No, no. Wasn't a lot of green eyes. It's a G.I. man alive. It starts with a bugle blowing revelry over your bed when you arrive. As World War II drew to a close, black G.I.s returning from battle were less understanding. My name is Maggie Morehouse. I'm a professor of Southern history at Coastal Carolina University. Many of the black soldiers from World War II will recount the horrible experience of seeing prisoners of war, Germans and Italians, treated better than they were as black soldiers wearing the uniform of the United States of America. Morehouse interviewed about 50 black vets for her oral history of World War II, including Jim Williams, who remembered seeing German prisoners when he was a sergeant stationed at Camp Lee, Virginia. The Germans were dishing out food for American GIs. There was a little friction there because they didn't want to 
serve the black GIs and uh, they had an attitude and then we got an attitude, meaning the black soldiers got an attitude and began to raise a rumble so they changed things a little. They took them off the serving line. And our contention was, well, what the hell, they're being treated better than we are, you know, and these are just prisoners of war. When Lena Horne arrived to perform at a mess hall in Camp Robinson, Arkansas, black American soldiers were seated behind German POWs. Horne stormed out and filed a complaint with the local NAACP. Throughout the war, the black press urged African American soldiers to fight for a double victory. You can sometimes see in pictures black soldiers in uniform raising their hands with a double V and a victory sign. Uh, that was victory against racism at home and uh, discrimination and racism abroad. Towards the end of 1945, those African-American soldiers were starting to come home. Something's cooking that rates an ovation Tells the nation my guys come back And when they come back, they will go out to change the world. I always call the World War II veterans the foot soldiers in the civil rights movement. As U.S. soldiers were coming home, German POWs waited for news of their fate. Labor groups wanted them returned to Germany quickly, but farmers still wanted their labor and wrote letters urging Congress to keep the POWs in the U.S. as long as possible. Linda Bruton was a young child, unaware of those debates or of big movements on the world stage. But she still vividly recalls the day her caretaker, Hans Liddell, left the farm. I just remember him picking me up and hugging me. And I had tears in my eyes, and he did too. And that was the saddest day of my life, was to tell him goodbye. Bruton and her mother spent years looking for Lydell and writing letters, not knowing if they were ever received. In recent years, she's looked for traces on the Internet and on Facebook. I always wondered, did he get back? Was he killed? I just don't know. And I just keep searching. On July 22, 1946, the last German POWs remaining in the U.S. climbed aboard a ship bound back across the Atlantic. Four years had passed since they began arriving in the U.S. As they watched the New York skyline shrink from view, the prisoners thought they were leaving captivity behind them. You're listening to Mine Enemy, the story of German POWs in America. I'm John Bewin. Thousands of German prisoners landed in U.S. POW camps during World War II. Most had been captured in the desert while fighting for Germany's Africa Corps. Allison Jones continues our story from Herlingen, Germany. That's the burial place of Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, commander of the Africa Corps. Each October, German veterans of World War II gather at the gravesite. Meine Damen und Herren, liebe Kameraden, es ist mir eine große Ehre für den Verband Deutsches Afrika Corps. The gatherings in this mountain town once drew thousands of veterans and sometimes protesters too. But the numbers have dwindled. There are just two German veterans of World War II here today in a crowd of about 40. My name is Heiner Gekalo. My age, I am 93, 93, yes, and uh, 
I was in America as a prisoner of war from uh, 45 to 46 in Missouri and afterwards in uh, Nebraska and then uh, in Colorado. Jaime Geckler was captured while fighting in Libya. He crossed the ocean to the U.S. in a flotilla of Liberty ships in July 1944, landing first in Missouri, where he worked on farms thinning sugar beets. At his home in Fullingen, Germany, Geckler shows me his scrapbook and tells about the money he earned as a POW. When I came back to Germany, I had dollars. I think I had uh, $40. And a big bag full with cigarettes and soaps and so on. And in Germany, you didn't get the soap. It was like Christmas. Geckler brought back names and addresses, too, and pledges of help. He shows me a letter he received in 1948. It's from his former POW camp boss. So you thought I had forgotten you. I hope you can soon get away and come over here. The 25-year-old Geckler had grown close to the camp boss and his wife. May God bless you too and soon bring you to your American papa and mama. Yours very truly, C.V. Slifer, Vichita, Kansas. Geckler also pulls out a small book he received as a POW and sets it on the coffee table. He has safeguarded the book since 1945. Before we left America, we were re-educated. We made a, a school for Democrats, you understand? <laughs> yeah. The book in his hands is a worn, cloth-bound volume in German, a primer about American democracy. American history, American government, it's also a souvenir of a nearly forgotten World War II battle, the war the U.S. fought for the hearts and minds of captured German soldiers. At first, the campaign to democratize German soldiers was waged secretly from a Rhode Island headquarters nicknamed the Idea Factory. We went through each camp and tried to find those people who were decidedly pro-democratic and move them to uh, Rhode Island and train them to be future leaders of Germany. The Idea Factory produced a POW newspaper and cranked out high-minded reading lists for POW camp libraries, featuring writers who promoted individualism, such as Ernest Hemingway and Thomas Mann. They were seen as a bridge to the post-war world. Matthias Rice teaches history at the University of Exeter in Exeter, England, and writes about German POWs. Prisoners of War represented the first chapter of the post-war story in the sense that you could start the reconstruction work with them and you could actually try to influence them and uh, turn them from foes into friends. The effort came out of hiding after the Nazi surrender in May 1945. At Fort Getty in the United States, German prisoners attend special classes to fit them for leadership in their own country. The Gestapo, they learn, is out, along with other fascist institutions in the reconstruction of Germany. By that spring, the re-education campaign had grown to include crash courses in democracy for thousands of German prisoners. Languages, government, finance, and public safety are part of the course, which was ordered by General Eisenhower. Several thousand Germans, all volunteers, will be taught here. But the Americans were preaching democracy and freedom of speech to prisoners. That wasn't always easy. Again, Matthias Rice. It's a very tricky thing to do when you deal with prisoners to tell them that you have freedom of speech because the moment they mentioned, for example, uh, the race problem in America, this freedom of speech was quickly 
curtailed. I mean, if they did, they were quickly branded as Nazis and uh, blacklisted and, and uh, often had to suffer the consequences by being transferred into other camps. While German soldiers were being tutored in democracy, Allied troops were marching across Europe, liberating Nazi concentration camps. Permit me to tell you what you would have seen and heard had you been with me on Thursday. It will not be pleasant listening. Edward R. Murrow visited Buchenwald in April 1945, the day after it was liberated. He was one of the first American journalists to describe what went on inside a concentration camp. We proceeded to the small courtyard. We entered. It was floored with concrete. There were two rows of bodies stacked up like cordwood. They were thin and very white. Some of the bodies were terribly bruised, though there seemed to be little flesh to bruise. Horrific scenes from Buchenwald, Holzen, and other camps were also captured on film by the U.S. Army Signal Corps. Those films became part of the re-education effort. At this concentration camp in the Gotha area, the Germans starved, clubbed, and burned to death more than 4,000 political prisoners over a period of eight months. Historian Christian Vinand interviewed many former German POWs. A lot of them were deeply shocked, couldn't believe it first. They thought it's, it's pictures from the bombed uh, German cities and not concentration camp survivors. Many POWs dismissed the films as American propaganda. When the U.S. government surveyed 20,000 prisoners being returned to Germany, fewer than half said they believed the concentration camp films to be true. My name is Hermann Däumling, and I am born 1919. Yes. Former POW Hermann Däumling lives in Munich, not far from the sprawling Central Park called the Englischer Garden. A second lieutenant and company commander in the Africa Corps, Däumling was captured in Tunisia in May 1943 and shipped by boat and rail to Kansas. There he was shown footage from the death camps. Däumling says he knew concentration camps existed in Germany. He had also heard rumors that German SS troops were killing Jews. But he says he learned of extermination camps such as Auschwitz and of the mass murders committed there by watching the U.S. Army films. The film was awful. There were lots of dead people, and at first we couldn't believe it. We said, this can't be real. This is a graveyard that's been dug up with dead bodies everywhere. This kind of thing doesn't exist. But the officer in charge, he said that these were prison camps in Poland and other places where millions of Jews were murdered, and we found this just doesn't happen. Nobody does that. We also listened to the radio, American radio, so we gradually had to believe it, that there actually were people, German people, who did such a thing, and at that we were ashamed. It was repulsive that such a thing could occur. We couldn't comprehend that people do such things. Hermann Däumling returned to Munich in December 1945. By then, the chaos of the war's end had lessened. At the end of the war, millions of German soldiers surrendered to the U.S. Army and were housed in makeshift temporary camps in Germany. Conditions were harsh and primitive, and many thousands of prisoners died of exhaustion, war wounds, and disease. Prisoners who landed in the U.S. fared much better, but after the war ended, not all of them went straight home. Beginning of June 1946, we were shipped in to Europe. Hermann Becker had spent two years in Camp Butner, North Carolina. 
He was sent back across the Atlantic in 1946, not to Germany, but to Le Havre, France. We landed, and uh, we were surprised when we left the ship. The American soldiers, they handed us over to the French soldiers. Becker was assigned to work on a French farm, Revelations about Nazi atrocities and of Germany's poor treatment of American POWs had created shockwaves in the U.S. In that atmosphere, the U.S. made a deal with its allies. Tens of thousands of German POWs were sent to England, France, and other allied nations and put to work rebuilding those shattered countries. Historian Matthias Rice interviewed some of them. They often had to do forced labor for another two years or so. They were told that if they kind of turn into good Democrats and accept everything the re-education program told them, then they would uh, be rewarded by going home, and it turned out uh, the opposite was the case. Once they did arrive home, the former U.S. prisoners advanced rapidly in post-war Germany, says historian Arnold Kramer. They came back to Germany with knowledge of English, with a liking for the United States. They could show Americans... Look, I worked for your government. I was a prisoner there. Here are the certificates that I got for good behavior. And they often moved up the ladder faster than anyone else. And in fact, by the mid-50s, long after the war was over, you could scratch any CEO of any big German corporation or any uh, high-ranking politician and find a German prisoner underneath. Some former POWs became leaders of post-war Germany, like Rudiger von Weckmar, who became president of the United Nations General Assembly. Thousands more were like Werner Lubbock. You're hearing a gospel choir outside Frankfurt, Germany, that includes Lubbock's daughter, Margareta Stahlmann. It's less surprising to hear American spiritualism in this German household once you learn more about this family. When Werner Lubbock landed in the U.S., World War II had robbed him of the chance for formal education. But in camps in Mississippi and North Carolina, he polished his English and picked up something else as well, new ideas for how to launch a career without a diploma. Starting as a dishwasher and ending somewhere. So that was the way I came up without a profession, without examination, only by the real American way. If you can do it, do it. This was the way I came up. Lubbock talked his way into a job with Exxon in Germany and stayed for three decades. And the family kept coming back to the U.S. as tourists, says his daughter, Margareta. When I was young, my parents had one interest uh, spending their holidays in America. I think they knew even every part of America. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The East Coast from Georgia, South Carolina, up to Boston. The West Coast from Alaska to the Mexican border along the famous 101. Despite all those travels, though, Lubbock couldn't find the one place he most wanted to see. Lubbock wanted to return to the places where he had been a prisoner, Butner in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and especially Camp Como, Mississippi, which had vanished after the war. This time in America formed my life for the future. 
I want to go back to the place where I have spent one of the best time in my youth. And I did it. Yeah, I, I came back. The break came when a family friend gave Lubbock's daughter a book about a German POW camp. The author helped him locate the camp. At 84 years of age, he could finally return. It was 2004. We made a trip to the States. As the family prepared for their trip, the abuses in the U.S.-run Abu Ghraib POW camp in Iraq were coming to light. When I heard and saw pictures prisoners, I couldn't believe that this happened because I made much better experience as a prisoner of war during the Second World War. I was shocked. Ich habe andere amerikanische Soldaten kennengelernt, nicht diese. Did you say, I met other American soldiers, not these? Ja, ich habe andere amerikanische Soldaten kennengelernt, nicht diese. Yes, yes, this was it. I learned to see other Americans and I was treated just in another way. And it was so helpful for his life. It was so good for his life. Some former POWs came back to the U.S. for good. Many settled in German immigrant communities in places like Houston, Texas, where the Houston Liederkranz singing group included a former German POW for many decades. Arnold Kramer says there's no way to know how many came back. I once estimated it was in excess of 5,000, but it was probably closer to about 8,000. The reason we don't know is because they were never asked on those forms, had you been a prisoner of war in the United States? Heino Erickson came back to the U.S. in 1953, and in 1958, he became a U.S. citizen. He eventually settled in the Houston area. You might say that Erickson was successfully re-educated, but the official re-education campaign with its lectures about democracy, he barely remembers it. It didn't have a, a vast influence on me because... I mean, here I saw the enemy country, and uh, I could see the difference. I, I saw democracy in action. These days, Erickson lives in Texas, about 90 miles from the camp where he was once a prisoner, together with his American wife, Jean. They show me pictures of the family he grew up in. My sister, my father, my mother, my um, sister and her husband and their baby. How old is Hergon now? These days, his family tree crosses religious, ethnic, and geographic boundaries. Together with his wife, Jean, Erickson opened an international adoption agency. The couple had three children and adopted three from Colombia. Erickson is a Methodist. His daughter married a Muslim man from Pakistan. His life now is worlds away from his boyhood, when he drank in the Nazi gospels of nationalism and racial purity. But echoes of that time remain, says his wife, Jean. Do you remember the Nazi songs they taught you when oh. you were a child? Well, then, um, I remember several of them. And they come to you in the night, don't they? Yeah, well, I don't know which Brainwashing. one. Brainwashing, because yeah. that's what it was. Or deep indoctrination is another word for it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I can remember 
Hitler used songs in total. You can't. Not that I want to, but... But what would they say, those songs? Oh, I have to think about it right now. I mean, there, there's some really bad songs. Uh, Sharpen the long knives on the lantern post, uh, and Jewish blood must flow. You know? When you think how old I was then, how old I'm now, I mean, you know, we're talking, maybe I want to remember, but most of the time I don't want to even think about it, you know. So that tells me that indoctrination is lifelong if you let it. As a POW in the U.S., Erickson stepped into a different world where new tunes were playing. After the war, he decided to make that world his own. As for Geckler, he returned home to Germany carrying dollars and bars of soap and a little pocket guide to the virtues of American democracy, a primer on all that America believed itself to be. America was a good step for us. To see America, the people and, and the living conditions, this was a good lesson for us prisoners. It was good for us to lose the war. Every German, previous soldiers will tell you this, I think so.